Zip up your zoot suits and zag off in your Zebex and Zambonis, my Zipperias and Zacharias, as we attempt to zealously and zanily zone a story on the zeroing zoological zeitgeist in Zest for Zen in this episode of Mangum Reads. As per usual, I'm Spencer, and with me are my partners in crime, Sarah and BJ. How y'all doing? Just zippy de doo day in the way, Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get that out. Um, mm. Maybe I'll pick up some uh, Thuspect Zarathustra for you. Spencer. I appreciate that, BJ. This week on our episode of Mangum Reads, we are doing a short story. Specifically, She Unnames Them by Ursula Le Guin. Uh... Sarah, you had recommended a short story by Ursula Gwynn, though you didn't have one particularly in mind. Are you, uh, had you read a bit by that author before, or is this a first one for you? No, so um, part of the reason that I, I sort of asked if we could read a short story by her is that I have, much to my chagrin, not read anything by Le Guin before. Um, I did, a couple of years ago, have a little bit of a situation where I was just reading a lot of fantasy um, kind of willy nilly, and I sort of thought I should, I should, I should read some Le Guin, and I picked up um, Tales of the Earth Sea and couldn't get through it, um, hmm. and felt a little guilty about that because I felt like I should be able to get through it. So that was kind of part of my um, thought process on trying to get some sort of Le Guin in my repertoire. Interesting. I feel like there are probably other things that might have spoken to you a little bit more. Um, but it sounds like you feel about Ursula Le Guin in some ways the way I feel about Tolkien, um, where it was something to get through, at least in, in the offering that, that you chose to go out with. Yeah, and I, I don't know I don't know necessarily what it was. It has been a couple of years um, since I've since I tried that, but I do remember kind of the feeling of that experience, which was like I don't what I felt like when I was trying to read that book was that I didn't have a lot to grasp onto in mm-hmm. it. And like, there was not a lot of concrete. Yes, I can get my hooks into this. Yes, I know what's going on here. Um, and if I have that initial moment of I connect with this, then I will put up with a lot after that. But I never had that initial moment of connection. So I've read at least one other novel by um, Le Guin, and I'm actually working and really working my way through another which is supposed to be one of her very highly recommended novels uh the left hand of darkness mm-hmm. and it uh it's interesting but it for me like it doesn't have its hooks in me and and it is more of a i feel like i'm running a marathon rather than there rather than a sprint i mean it, it's when we um, read N.K. Jameson's uh, fifth season, mm-hmm. I just blew through that novel. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I listened to it, I read it, and I think I listened to it again. And each time, you know, I still, you know, no, it wasn't as good as the first time I read it because that's a lot of crap. But it was still a fun read each time. I picked up new things, and it, you know, I I really was taken up by the story and. Um, there was a another one by Le Guin, which was um, something like the Lathe of of God or, or something like that, and I can't remember um, what it is offhand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lathe of Heaven, um, which I feel like it it put its hooks in me a, a, a bit more than uh, Left Hand of Darkness, and so I think that it it really is sort of dependent on. Um, the, the style in which you read books, what you like to read, and 
um, where where you what you want the author to do. And um, I also think to a certain extent that even this short story that we're going to be talking about, she unnames them. Um, I feel like still has a little bit of the criticism that you had for Melancholy Elephants, which is it's a bit of an essay, sort of. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I think and, it, I think it does have that, and um, I also think these types of stories. Um, and I, I, I want to get back to what you're saying, BJ, but I think that these types of stories also are very situationally dependent on where you read them and if you're ready. Ready is a not the right term, but if you are if you are in a right state of mind, in the right state of mind to accept them, right? Yeah. Um, and so I'm I'm currently trying to struggle struggle through a novel right now that I am very clearly not in the right state of mind to deal with from an author that I really like. And so I'm reading um, Marlon James's um, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. And I just cannot, I can't deal with it. And I think it's actually, it strikes me as the things that I'm having trouble with it um, are the things that I've had trouble with Le Guin before, which is the sort of squidgy, ethereal, kind of mythical structure mm-hmm. without real specifics to sink into. Yeah. Um, I think that, and I guess what, to me, like to put it in a, a context of, of many fantasy novels, it, it's the, when you're immersed in a world mm-hmm. without much direction. Yes. And you're just sort of like getting a sense for everything that's going on and be it, you know, through a character or a series of characters and there aren't events or struggles or something specific to gravitate to that really sort of define what the story is. And so it, it's, yeah. um, you know, something that we at some point in some fantasy of what this uh, podcast was going to be, we we're going to break <laughs> things up into plot uh, world building and characters and there are some books that it's no. appropriate to or some <laughs> stories that it's appropriate to but but that's sort of taken mm-hmm. um, a, a lot of a backseat just because of what we've been reading and, and you know I th- still think that there's uh, fantasy and sci-fi novels that that is appropriate to and, and probably even some uh, just general fiction and non-fiction um, but an example of a book that I feel like typifies your um what you're talking about that I did get through and this was somewhat of a commitment um, was uh, God, I'm blanking on it. It's the uh, blood moon or something like that. Spencer, is it the the Jemison? No, it was like, it's like 14 books that everybody in Mangum read except for me. And then, Oh, the Malazan. Yeah. Malazan. Oh, for God's sake. Malazan book of the phone. Gardens of the moon is a hell of a rough way to start a series. No, Um, I read one book and I was like, I I just read this book and I don't know what happened. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those books of, it's one of those series. And this is a weird thing to say of where you're better off just not even reading the first book. That's what Doug Come back to it later. Me, and I'm like, no, yeah. I don't know what's going on. And it's know like, well, you know, if you read from books four through 10 and then come back for the first three and then read the last two, <laughs> like you finally get a sense of like what was actually happening in the first book and understand where all the characters were. And it makes it a really good book. But the really good books are like, six seven and eight and you only really understand those once you read four five and six and it was just like well then why did he release them in that order and no and i'm i'm willing to do a lot of work to read a book i am not willing to do calculus to figure out what book i should read next (laughs) yeah 
it, it's a very interesting series and in where it's very clearly written by an anthropologist who has a lot more interest in building up a world and various cultures than necessarily writing a coherent character-driven story or arc or even giving you background to understand the world that he's presenting for you. Because the first one just drops you off roughly in the middle and never bothers to explain itself, even until the end, and it's just content that maybe about four or five books from now you'll understand what the first one was trying to say. Maybe. And maybe. The second one is a great standalone book that tells its own story and has very little connections whatsoever to the first one, and it's the second one that actually got me interested enough to read like the next four or five. <laughs> first one, I came back after I'd read those, and it was suddenly a great book because I knew who the hell he was actually talking about now. But I could never recommend someone have that kind of commitment to a series to be willing to do that. Yeah. Doug, on the other hand, can. <laughs> yeah, well, he's a but, special person in the world. Yeah, Let's ground ourselves in a short story we'd aim to talk about today. Yes. Um, so, so we this have is not the shortest names them. Yeah. short story that we've read. It's close. It's wait, close. wait, which one is the shortest short story? <laughs> Uh, BJ, what was the, well, besides the, um, what, what was the one? It was biblical as well. What was the name of that um, one, BJ? It was Isaac Asimov, um, and I need to look it up. It was. Oh, this was before Sarah. It um, was. was. Which is also known as BS. Yes. <laughs> That's that era of the Total show, BS. the BS era. <laughs> um, while I look it up, so, so there were a couple of, um, other short stories there was one by edgar carrot which is it, it's not even a short story it's sort of a prose poem about not being able to breathe which i really liked um so so those were also uh quite short um, uh, was the one about the zipper under the tongue yes um so there was this, yeah that, 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 that was by the same that was also by edgar carrot wasn't it yes so there were like four or five uh, I think four short stories by Edgar Carrot that, that were all very short. Not all of them um, super short, um, but... Well, while you look up the Asimov one, this one uh, is about 980 words long. It was originally published, published in The New Yorker back in 1985. And it it is directly grounding itself, I feel, in a line from Genesis, mm -hmm. of where there's a line in Genesis 2.19 and through 20, which says... And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam would call every living creature, that was the name thereof. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. And this is the book where our primary fe female figure, who we shall debate who it is, I'm assuming it's <laughs> Eve probably, but there's an argument for another figure, uh, goes about undoing that work for reasons to be explained as the story uh, near the end of the story yep um, and so, so given the short, this sort of oh go ahead bj i was gonna say the short story was how it happened and sarah yeah, if you haven't read it i highly recommend it it'll take you about 30 seconds <laughs> okay it's very cute it's very cute <laughs> the only thing that i was going to say at this juncture is that spencer you have um sort of set up the Adam and Eve Garden and even Garden of Edenness of this, which seems like an appropriate moment for me to talk about my cocktail. Please do what you got. Well, so this was a recommendation by BJ, and it is an Adam and Eve cocktail, and so therefore there are two versions of said cocktail, which are very gendered. In I don't know, I guess um, glassware predictable, which is also awkward. It is awkward. And I, well, it's awkward for a lot of reasons, but the, the <laughs> cocktail itself, very good. Um, so it is, the base of both of the cocktails is a rye whiskey, 
a um, bit of Cointreau, some bitters, and lemon peel. And that is shaken up. And you can either have that on its own, which is an atom, or you can um, top it off with sparkling wine or champagne, which is an eve. Hmm. And so I've had both multiple times over the night. <laughs> we have to try and make sure it's good. And well, yes. Listen, this is, my, this is my process. Cocktail hour comes around. We don't record. Here's behind the veil, listeners. We don't record until 8.30, but cocktail hour starts at 5. Um, and I have to <laughs> test what we are going to drink on said night. Well, sure. Um, you, have to, you have to be scientific. There has to be a certain level of scientific rigor about this. Yeah, Simply absolutely. one cocktail will not do in knowing. No. Um, so I've had both and I will say enjoy the Eve better. I like the I like the mellowness that a little bit of sparkling wine provides. Well, that's good because Ursula Le Guin clearly has her sympathies with Eve in this story. Well, I felt that that was, um, that was appropriate and therefore I am calling this despite the fact that it is, I suppose, Eve in the um, recipe that you sent me, BJ, I'm going to call this the unnamed. Hmm. I like that. Well, in this story, uh, we begin without much level of a frame of reference as we see a concept of namelessness being presented to the various animals of the world. And in a similar to biblical fashion, we go through them in a form of a list as the various animals in their various environments are presented with this option. It's important to note that unlike in the original degree of Genesis, of Genesis, this isn't being forced upon them. This isn't something that is being removed from them or taken away without their will. This is being subject to committee as each animal is presented with this and consents to it, even debates it. Because apparently the yaks are very fond of the term yak and feel that it is very appropriate for them. And unlike other animals that have had countless other names, yak has always fit quite well. But apparently a council of elderly females agreed that, you know, it's never really been used by them so they can dispense with it. So and we continue the other mm-hmm. thing that I thought was interesting and, and I didn't look up and I'm a little disappointed that this is not in your review is that they mentioned that, yeah, that there are many other names for many creatures in many different tongues, which I thought was sort of an interesting way to present it if this is Adam and Eve, uh, but that yak is always yak. That's, um, and, and yeah, no, that's fair. The sort of like linguistic what are yeah. the names of these animals yeah yeah, yeah. and you know um, there are probably other very specific examples the only one that yeah. comes to mind right now is an axolotl <laughs> <laughs> well in some in somewhat vonnegut style the story is quite unstuck in time we've, we've got references to Babel, yes. despite that being long after the time of adam and eve we've got references to very 21st century concepts of the of the husband asking the wife wins dinner um, we've got references to the German language and other things. This is a story that is not confining itself to any particular era in human history. It is drawing on, a, well, perhaps immortal beings or immortal concepts and giving the story at once. Yeah, it's got a little bit of a sort of platonic, these are the ideal of whatever <laughs> these creatures are. Um, mm-hmm. But to go along with the platonic, and like weirdly, the theme of this podcast um, over the last... I don't know, five or six episodes has been a continual calling back to T.S. Eliot <laughs> <laughs> and the and book this, of Old Blossom's Practical Cats, which Le Guin mm-hmm. specifically references in the fact that when we are going through the sort of list of animals and saying to to what extent or how they are reacting to the idea that they should give up the name that has been given them by humans. The cats say, well, we never recognize those names. 
as names in the first place. Um, and T.S. Eliot rightly um, sussed out that we have our own very personal names for ourselves. Um, you know, I think we have, if there is a through line to this podcast, it is quite unexpectedly <laughs> Old we, Possum's Book of Practical Cats. You know, it, the fact that it's directly name dropped or directly referenced in this kind of says we need to eventually dedicate an episode to it. it. There's too much fate and serendipity that's being tied into the story now to not discuss it in greater <laughs> detail. But for here, it's a in my, as a, as a cat owner from my childhood, I can say it's a pretty accurate commentary on the bearing of cats. Sarah, as our present cat owner, do you agree that they spend most of their times contemplating their own uniqueness and their names they've assigned to themselves? Neither of my cats know that they have names that they have been given by us humans, and I have one next to me right now who is contemplating the heavens outside of the sliding glass door. So, Interesting. And given that it's not trying to kill you, I know which it is. Actually, it's not the one you would expect. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, I think she's been recently fed. (laughs) That does help. Um, So the other thing that it does continue with, which I thought was interesting, is that the names that we are talking about are not individual names. They are sort of species designations. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a distinction, distinction that needs to be made to certain animals that engage in language more than the others. dogs, right. the parrots, the lovebirds, um, and I feel like there was a weird one in that list. Um, uh, yeah, it was it was kind of entertaining because it was you know those that want to be called Rover or Fru Fru, Polly or even Birdie in the personal sense. Well, that's fine, but the generic appellation Poodle, Parrot, Dog, or Bird is problematic and what we're addressing and i don't know i kind of like that that poodles are separate from dogs because they very clearly are <laughs> oh um, god yeah it, it was quite a shock when i met my first standard poodle because i'd only been present with those kind of those kind of tiny toy poodles before and mm-hmm. then upon meeting a standard i got to realize oh that's why you were a war dog back during the medieval era i now get this you're up past my hip in terms of height they're real dogs um, my mom had a standard poodle when she was growing up in like the 60s and 70s named Pepper. And it uh, was a, a very big dog. <laughs> what? Beach? I was going to say that that just seems very right for, <laughs> for everything involved in that sentence. You know, it was the <laughs> 70s, your mom, maybe somewhere in the Midwest, just sort of everything associated with that. Just, you know, Pepper, the, the standard poodle. Yes, and it was a it was a standard poodle who was like the big standard poodle who was not groomed in any sort of way to have the puffs or whatever. Um, but my mother did still paint its claws, <laughs> and it put wow. up with it. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. Well, one of the things we see as uh, the animals are giving us names that they've been assigned to those names that they've been donated, as it's usually put. Uh, it very much described as a weight that's being taken off them or a, a cross that they've had to bear for a very long time. With respect to the dogs and the birds and the talking animals, it's described as a Linnaean quali- uh, qualifiers that had trailed along behind them for 200 years like tin cans tied to a tail. Uh, for the fish of the sea, it's a, like a bit of ink that's left to drift off them in the currents and disappear without a trace. This is very clearly something that has in some ways been a burden, or uh, in other cases, something that's never really meant anything to them other than the fact that it was put upon them. And it, 
So mm-hmm. I, I, I guess the thing that I wanted to add was um, the the bad translation that I would give is that um, instead of the living creatures, it's the soul of creatures or the soul of animals um, when it talks about uh, Adam naming the creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like that sort of talks to a little bit more that it's sort of weighing down on them rather than just like he's naming all of the creatures. So it's it's, it's it's Adam putting a name to their soul? Is that what you're talking about? So uh, if I were to do a really bad translation um, Mm -hmm. and it's basically um, God like was watching what uh, he would call them and everything that he called them everything that that adam called them the the souls of the animals that was his name well and it ties into a lot of both classical uh philosophical belief and classical religious belief that and under to the uh, greeks and greeks of aristotle to name something was to know it and that has biblical connotations itself and in classic folklore and a lot of belief about demonology and things like that to know something's true name, to assign it a true name, is to control it, is to own it, is to be the master upon mm-hmm. it. And so that very much ties in, that the idea of knowing something, of having a name put to it and being able to assign a name, is in some ways being a lord over a domain. And that is very much what God is giving to Adam, is that by naming everything, he is giving the world and naming and putting Adam as paramount over it. I would say it's almost the other way around in more modern times, given the uh, collapse of galapagos tortoise how do you mean uh it took a really long time for it to get back to the uk to get named because they were eating oh, it was so oh yeah, yeah. yes that's a funny story from qi <laughs> now i will say that um so i spent many many years as a vegetarian mm-hmm. i'm sorry <laughs> it was fine this this is your confessional go on I enjoyed it, and now I enjoy eating meat, and it's like whatever. I have I have a lot of things to say about that, um, but my very midwestern Lutheran family, particularly my grandmother, when I would talk about <laughs> at a Sunday Sunday dinner table, when I would say that I was you know I'm a vegetarian, I'm not going to eat this, I will eat around whatever it is, right? Um, my grandmother occasionally said to me, and this was astonishing, was, um, well, you know, God gave us dominion over the sheep in the field and the whatever and the whatever. I was like, what are we talking about here? (laughs) (laughs) They are your slaves. You must eat them now. I don't think that means I have to eat them. Like, I don't... (laughs) No, they'll get uppity if you don't. Um, yeah, yeah. So that, which I think... Is not specifically related to this story, but it does it does directly stem out of the kind of mythos that the story come from, right? Yeah, which so, is so very much the mythos. Yeah, um, because <laughs> at, at some point in certain translations, it's you know, and you know, God gives man and Adam dominion over. It's the dominion. The, dominion is the word. Yes, over all of the creations, um, mm-hmm. and the only one that. Well, depends on your sort of reading, but the only one that isn't under his dominion is, is his uh, is woman. Okay. Um, one woman more than another, if you believe certain medieval Jew- Jewish folklore. Uh, yeah, that's sort of an interesting. And Sarah, I feel like the, the you know, <laughs> woman isn't under his dominion, and you saying okay in a dismissive way was, was not the way I expected you to go. 
Well, even when I mean Adam names Eve woman, and he names her because she is of him. So yes. he he is naming her too. He, she she by by that act she is under his dominion, if not in the quite the same way as the animals of the earth. No, yes. but it is specifically the point of the story. Yes. yes, and and it and it comes to a head here now that she's un our main character has unnamed the world. She's unnamed all the animals in it, and as she's walking among but, them, she's okay. Go ahead. Yes. Sorry. What? Well, I, I was going to say, like, she talks about the process of unnaming them brings her closer. That's that's okay. what I was getting yeah, to now. Yes, that's why of... I was like, you know, go ahead. But yes. Yeah, yeah th- th- this is the bridging paragraph between unnaming all the animals and then telling Adam essentially what, what, what she did. Uh, where she's going now between them and sees that now that she's unnamed them, that the names really functioned as kind of a barrier that was, that was separating them, was keeping an element of... Uh, constant distance and lack of understanding and now that these names have fallen away there's nothing there's so much less to separate them there's still the same fear there's still the same natural feelings but there's a memorable line here at the end that and the hunter could not be told from the hunted nor the eater from the food as a lot of the labels that have been put upon them as the ensigned barriers and distinctions have fallen away so much of the categorizations that came with those, so much of the assignment that came with those, the burdens, the expectations, have also disappeared. And we're left in a new world where each individual can decide their own perspectives and fate and role in it. Okay. And mm-hmm. so before you go too much further, please, Dr. George Waterfield, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm going to make Spencer read the entire sentence that he just quoted the last, you know, eight or ten words of. And I, I want to hear some of your opinion on it because it's written interestingly and I feel like there are things that can be read into it that I'm not sure is appropriate for what uh, Le Guin was going for but more maybe a more modern take on those words there's definitely a word choice element to this okay yeah um so Spencer I I will happily read sure thank you uh the entire sentence right yep and the attraction that many of us felt, the desire to feel or rub or caress one another's scales or skin or feathers or fur, taste one another's blood or flesh, keep one another warm, that attraction was now all one with the fear, and the hunter could not be told from the hunted nor the eater from the food. Okay. Okay. Dr. George Waterfield, your interpretation, the floor is yours. Well, okay, so I have to, I'm trying to figure out where that is actually in the story. Um, One, two, three, four, five, six paragraphs from the bottom. Oh, from the bottom. Okay, hold on. You counted. I've got the bottom of the the page closer in front of my eyes than the top right now. Uh, It's in the none were left now to unnamed paragraph, the last sentence. Okay. Um, And part of the reason, I don't really know what the question is that is being asked of me at this point, but part of the reason that I asked that is that this is the paragraph this paragraph that starts, none were left to a name now, and yet how close I felt to them when I saw them. This is the the first switch between mm-hmm. a sort of close, cl- I, I guess, close third. Um, to a first person. To yes. a first person. Yeah. yeah right. From a, from a narrator to a much more personal tale. Essentially halfway through. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I am looking at the entire story right now, and it is halfway <laughs> through that we go yep. from this consideration of these these animals and what their conversations about their naming might be, 
or what non-considerations they might have about their naming, like all of that kind of stuff. This is the first paragraph that we get a no, there is an actual narrator here. Yep, and the narrator's taking an active role in yes. something. Yes. Um, and the fact that it begins with the none were left to unname now, or none were left now to unname, excuse me, and how close I felt to them when I saw one of them swim or fly or trot or crawl across my way or over my skin or stalk me in the night or go along beside me um, for a while in the day. Like, that is a very powerful sentence in a um, identification with this first instance of the eye that is occurring, this first instance of there is a an actual self here who is narrating this whole thing, who is kind of figuring out what is going on here with all of these animals who were pretty impersonal throughout the thing, despite the, the Elliot um, <laughs> kind of uh, identification that was going on here. Like this, this paragraph is incredibly important in the, in the turn in this story and in understanding as a human reader who is in the situation, um, understanding that we are, we have been in this whole situation in a human perspective, um, but we have we have not been in a sort of like platonic human perspective. We have been in a woman's perspective. Yep, and and that's really important. And and interestingly, like there's this feeling of a semi omniscient narrator up to this mm-hmm. point. Yep, um, mm-hmm. and I guess. Then sort of the, well, one of the questions that comes to mind, is this a um, appellation or uh, humanization of the activities of other creatures that's sort of maybe more of what's happening in this first part where it's, you know, we've put these names on them and defined their attributes, but that's an outside definite upon them. And so, you know, it isn't quite right to do so. Um, even though, you know, uh, Jonathan Swift attempted to name horses by the sounds <laughs> that they make. Um, the Winnems. Um, but, you know, we've, we've basically imposed our will upon, uh, and forgive me for this, but God's creations. Um, and basically that is one of the things that is separating the, the narrator and uh, people from, you know, sort of everything else where in their mind, you know, they're just doing their own thing and our um, appellations to them and our interference is sort of something to be abided by but little else and so at this turn what we what we get is this this eve narrator or lilith narrator or <laughs> something, apart from, something apart from something apart from adam there's no big reveal here. It's Eve, but it, it, it's maybe Eve becoming Lilith. But we'll debate that. The, there, um, there are certain aspects, but there there is a, um, dislineation, disintegration between a sort of like biblical, we gave them the names to you gave them the name, right? Mm-hmm. The, the um, persona and the narrator who comes out in this sort of first person um, narration is actively distancing herself from this idea of, well, I didn't do this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In fact, I am part of the contingent of creatures who has been given names, and I'm going to Mm -hmm. identify as that now. Now, there are some things that happen in the interim. (laughs) There's some dialogue? 
ish that happens in the interim. Um, there's some interaction that happens, but the upshot is that this this Eve character, who we are meant to identify with as the first person narrator of the story, is going against um, the kind of omniscient narrating system that is happening kind of in the world writ large. Yeah, and the mm-hmm. flow of things. Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. the the thing that I was re- referencing in in the I sort of am curious about your take. Um, the choice of some of the words in that last sentence seems very Spencer-ish um, in some okay. ways. What? <laughs> I, I, I don't find myself, I, I don't find my choice of language being particularly carnal in the way that this sentence is, but how are you going with that? I was going to just simply say interesting with connotations that I don't know were meant or not, um, but... I, 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 I don't know how she couldn't. This sentence is doubling down on this kind of very carnal references between um, oh. the re- interactions, the feelings between the characters. And that's why I wanted to get spent that to get Sarah's input because I don't know if we're reading something in there that is just not quite there or whatever else, or if you read the same thing in that sentence. So I think that. Um... I think that kind of me as myself, I read what you are reading in that sentence. Um, What it reads like to me, and this is potentially a product, and I can even, even in this very short story that is the first thing that I've read of Le Guin, um, I think that she is very progressive in a lot of things that she does. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, But I think that we are in 1985, and there is a fair amount of the sort of like thinking versus feeling of men versus women that is going on here um, that kind of deals with this. And I think that she is doing, she is presenting it in a very positive light of the sort of like deep connection with the earth. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And the kind of deep understanding of what our senses bring to us, this kind of sensory understanding of the world yeah, that and she is talking about, but it is set against this kind of intellectual naming understanding of the world that I think is uncomfortable to us in a modern reading. Yeah, I guess I was wondering, like, I could see it being written as more of like a uh, relationship, kinship, friendship, rather than more carnal, as wanted to say, Spencer. Um, I think oh, it's meant that, to be read, yeah. written. I think it's meant to be read in a few different ways. And it often, it really hinges on just what assignment you want to put to the word attraction that she repeats a couple times. Is that meant to be romantic or is it meant to merely be a connection between two people being drawn together? Or different things drawn together. And there together are other euphemisms, no barriers. like keep another warm or, you know, rub or, or caress. caress. It, right, there are a bunch of things in there where, you know, are we, as... You know, we vaguely said in the beginning of this, is this an essay that's talking about sort of the, you know, breaking down of barriers and casting off of the assigned roles that Adam has sort of decided for things. And, you know, this is somewhere between all three of those because, you know, that was the place that was determined by woman and the place... er, determined for women and the place that was determined for animals by Adam and at least in this story God um, or his father which I'm just going to assume is God because that seems to be where the story is going sure Um, Mm -hmm. 
and she's sort of casting that off and saying like i i reject that and so i'm going to treat all the other animals that were honestly created before we were as as relative equals and whatever else and just live in the world as it is as opposed to what we are trying to enforce upon it so that's kind of your latter statement is what i get from it but i do think that there are whatever Guin went meant or not there are connotations to words that she has used right Mm -hmm. um that were not as far as I know, that we're not alien to the lexicon in 1985, right? Like these were yeah. not pretty modern era. Yeah, I mean, we're she, we're not talking 1923, right? This is yeah, this she, is she relatively may very modern. Well yeah, be writing we're not having a, for an audience that is primarily male and is sort of tossing them a bone and still trying to get her point across in the essay. And and I don't know. I don't know that that's necessarily true, but I do think that like this squidginess between a sort of um, self that is formed outside of a masculine identity that is formed outside of a kind of Adam figure and the idea that that self might identify more with um, a kind of animal ethos is not outside of I, I don't even know what I'm saying right now but um I think that there is a sort of Venn diagram between the idea that like a woman in this period and a woman kind of with a language that Le Guin is using might be both disidentifying from a masculine and identifying with an animal and setting herself apart from the masculine all of that gets very complicated yeah and maybe like her defined role in the household and what she's supposed to be to adam like once she is rejecting his uh dominion as you know Mm -hmm. we referenced before all all of those things get thrown out and it sort of needs to be established anew and part of that is all of the inter uh animal thing you know being whatever relationships and that encompasses uh eaters and hunters and prey and uh social and romantic interactions because if you're unnaming everything that's sort of where you start out with yeah and i think i think that's interesting because sorry spencer um but i think that's interesting because like what we are essentially set up with in this story is a sort of animal being versus a male being, right? Mm-hmm. Um, versus a male human being or, or whatever, versus mas- masculinity, we might say. But mm. we have this figure of um, the narrator who is us at this point. We don't get the thought process of, of that decision-making of where you might fall in that spectrum. Um, but we also don't get an endpoint of where you might fall in that spectrum. It is, mm-hmm. we get the animals rejecting the naming system of humans, mm-hmm. rejecting the dominion of humans. Um, and we get a sort of like d- us as narrator rejecting something, but it is not necessarily clear where we are going at that point. Yeah, it's no. sort of like, I'm out, 
mic drop and then right that's yeah it. exactly yeah and yeah. so i don't and maybe maybe i'm misremembering but like i don't get a sense of what we as narrators are doing at that point yeah i don't no? think it's clear so spencer how do you feel as the um mother of all mankind what but I, I, you like to put your of... it, yourself into the role of the narrator well I don't necessarily in this story, but I do have an interesting uh, couple questions on it. About we've spent most of the story talking about uh, the act of naming in its biblical sense being you know an act of dominion, an act of control. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of the characters in the story view it that way. That all all of them refer to this as a donation, as a gift. That when uh, our main female character returns this, her only words are, "You and your father lent this." Uh, lent me this, gave it to me actually, and it's been very useful. But it doesn't seem to fit very well lately. But thanks very much. It's been, been, it's been really been very useful. And she refers to it as a gift, and that she feels bad having to return it, as if she's being peevish and ungrateful. That it's not clearly it's something that she can voluntarily leave behind. It's not necessarily an act of oppression or control. And Adam himself, who gave these, who donated these, who put these on all the world, is relatively indifferent to it. He seems disconnected to the whole thing and what profound act he did in the past. It also takes pains to say that though these are things that have been put on all of the creatures of creation, they haven't altered what they were, just how they interacted with each other. That they were not something that altered the nature of their being, and all the animals are realizing that. It's that, nah, it didn't really ever really matter much. I've always been me. I've always been what I am. This was just how other people then looked at me. And now that they're leaving us behind, it's not so much that they're altering individually, but they're just altering how they can now go about interacting with the rest of the world. And as you guys said, when our female character reaches the end of this, she kind of finally realizes for the first time that she doesn't know what this means. That now that she's left all of these prior assignments, all of these prior classifications by which the world operated in behind, she kind of has to build from the ground up. That she has to invent a language once again for describing the world and describing how all of us interact in it. And that's scary to her, it seems, as she suddenly has a shocking realization that this is a whole new dark and unexpected world that she's going to have to go wander into, to the point that when she even she walks past trees, she simply refers to them as dark branched tall dancers, motionless against the winter shining. And so I don't, I don't, this isn't a story where I necessarily identify with the characters. This isn't a story that really cares much as the characters other than archetypes. But it's a really interesting theme to feel. It's an interesting thought about what degree these kind of barriers of assignment of categorization have on a society. I was going to say, I feel like your characterization of especially the end of the uh, essay story reminds me of the, uh, I believe, Shakespeare quote, um, about a rose, and it's sort of a rose is a rose by any other name. Would it smell just as sweet? Yeah. Um, and I think Le Guin is trying to say no in some ways because it. I guess what I take away from like the latter half of this story is that the names and language that are imposed upon creatures define the interactions. Mm-hmm. And so I I think that this essay basically says, no, if you named it something like stink flower, people would find it gross. Um, and that, you know, 
you know, I guess, you know, if I were in high school, I'd write an essay about, you know, basically defining things and having uh, definitive relationships are what characterize them in sort of a modern society. And breaking that means that you have to reform those bonds and it gives you a, there is no base to work up from. And so without that, things can and people can and, and whatever else build the relationships and hierarchy that is more inherent to them rather than some uh, force that is imposed upon them if i were a better writer when i was in high school um, but i wasn't so i'd have written something shitty <laughs> hmm. well and so what is most unbelievable in this story um to me and i think in some ways kind of flies against what the the way that you were describing it, Spencer, is this idea that Adam, as the patriarch of this story, is going to voluntary voluntarily let go of the power of naming. Okay, and I feel like this is a very uh, time and place thing, as uh, I think we briefly talked about, but um, and we've talked about before in some of the other stories that we've read, where. I feel like this is like a, you know, an 80s TV trope um, that that even persisted in, you know, the past 20 years after that and probably is a little bit less so and maybe a little bit more of a frowned upon trope of he's not letting her go. He just doesn't deign to pay attention to what she's actually saying and wants to know when dinner is. Well, and so what does that get her in the world, right? It's also notable why he's not paying attention. Of where I think the story is kind of implying that what he's working on is w- when she says goodbye, she says, well, goodbye, dear. I hope the garden key turns up. And the implication there being is that Adam is in some ways still searching for a way back into paradise. Mm-hmm. And that being his only focus, that being the only thing that's driving him, everything else is insignificant and irrelevant. And so the fact that he had this great power and assigned all the categories to the world has fallen away from him in his mind because all he's questing for is a return to this kind of long lost paradise. Interesting. I I read it the other way around, but I like your interpretation. Sorry, Sarah, go ahead. No, it's no, that's fine. I mean, I, I buy that interpretation, but it is, it's an interesting, it's an interesting narrative mode and interpretation in the 1980s and in, in the sort of present day of, yes, a sort of patriarchal figure is going to care about this sort of entrance into the Garden of Eden, entrance into the gates of heaven, right? Um, and they're going to have one eye turned toward, towards that, but one eye turned towards the sort of earthly understanding of like, well, this is what it takes. And mm-hmm. my dominion over you is clearly a path towards what that what that means, right? And so this sort of like complete disassociation from what is happening in the kind of everyday as it is as much as of an everyday is is presented in this story um, is a sort of like, well, yeah, I guess. But like, I, I read this as a sort of patriarchal fable, right? Yeah. It also could be a commentary on abandonment of responsibility, too. Sure. Because... Sure. Because it's one of the things where there's been different interpretations of the biblical line about God gave man dominion over the world is that, you know, God 
let mankind have treat the earth of its plaything, or God designated man as the steward of the world yes. to care for God's creation. Mm -hmm. And this is clearly a circumstance of where Eve has been wandering the world, speaking with the animals, associating, connecting with them in a way that apparently Adam has never done before. That Adam essentially at the very beginning assigned them names and then backed away and focused only on a way to return back to Eden. Whereas Eve has gone and taken the actual time to associate with them, to bond with them, to break down the barriers that separated them while Adam has been only questing for a return to a divinity, a return to God's grace. And so has let the task that God or divinity, his father, set him on languish. And so in that circumstance of where there's been an absence of where these responsibilities, these role of a caretaker have been let to go to pot, Eve has stepped in to fill the gap and has essentially broken the control and has now gone off to be one with the world that God gave. If you want to interpret it from almost like an environmentalist kind of standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, is it I unfair guess that I see um, Adam as sort of working on his motorcycle at this moment when Eve comes to him? I, I don't think so. And <laughs> okay. so That's, that's I, the visual we're meant to have. Okay. I guess <laughs> the other thing that I thought is that it was actually the other way around, that they were, they, they were slash are in the Garden of Eden as opposed to outside of it looking to get back in. Oh, interesting. And I, that's probably just from the um, vague amount of biblical things that I, for some God only knows what reason, have, have some knowledge of. Whereas, you know, while they were in the Garden of Eden, they basically just didn't have to do anything. Like, everything mm -hmm. was just sort of there. There was no work to be done. There was no effort to be put forth. There was just like, oh, you know, dinner's going to be on the table at some point. Like, you know, we there's nothing that we have to deal with and have to put forth in terms of effort in relating to the world. It's just sort of there. And, and so in this, in this kind of reading is Eve's or our narrator's kind of understanding of what the animals are feeling and thinking, is that the forbidden knowledge? Um, sure, but I guess the I guess how I interpret it is that Eve is sort of transitioning from the Garden of Eden to um, outside of it to where relationships matter and like what the animals are and who they are and what they do in the world matter. Whereas mm -hmm. before it didn't really, cause they were just sort of there. And it was sort of just like an idyllic, like, oh, it's a fairy garden and there are lions and lambs and they're just kind of hanging out because it's the Garden of Eden. And, you know, that's just the way that, you know, paradise is, but paradise is boring. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't really define the animals as to what they really are which is post-Eden, post, you know, knowledge of, well, so knowledge of good and evil, but knowledge about the world and what it is and what those relationships are, as opposed to just sort of existing in, in a fabled paradise. Mm -hmm. yeah. It, it, it's, yeah, it's definitely another potential interpretation. I think, I think both, both can hold up to further review. I mean, I'm guessing mine is less correct because I come from it from a slightly different point of view, my guess, than um, Le Guin was going with. But, um, but it's, again, you know, very fascinating essay. Well, I mean, it's one of the things I've been, you know, being cagey with about whether our main character is Eve or Lilith. I um, mean, it almost seems to, to... Which interpretation we go with about when this is taking place and whether they are in still in the garden or not could be relevant. Um, so, I mean, just, yeah, Spencer, yeah. can you tell us more about the sort of distinction between Eve and Lilith and what you're thinking I mean, is there? 
I mean, it, it depends. It, it, we're really going deep into Jewish folklore to present Lilith <laughs> as a figure in modern kind. In modern kind of uh, connotation, she's you know this de- this demon of hell, a right hand of Satan, all kinds of other things. Going back to the uh, period of the Talmud, um, she, uh, the Babylonian Talmud, she was viewed as a very much a demon of the night, kind of a mix between a succubus and a, and a predator to children. To which one of the most common archaeological, well, a pretty common archaeological uh, thing we'll find when you're going through the, the area of Mesopotamia are what's called Lilith bowls, where traders would sell this to Jewish households so they could put one at each corner of their house so that Lilith wouldn't come through the window in the night and feast upon or steal their children with little incantations in a spiral down, which she'd have to read if she'd saw it and would catch her at the bottom. And if you bought a really good one, there was already a little Lilith that was caught at the bottom, with no really explanation how a singular figure could be caught in your bowl, but whatever. By the time we get on to more Jewish folklore of the, of the early Middle Ages, um, Lilith had then now become the first wife of Adam, who, unlike Eve, who was made from one of Adam's ribs, she was actually formed from the same clay as Adam at the same time, was an equal, an equal creation of God. Um, but due to a variety of different reason, um, reasons, she refused to be subservient to Adam and chose to voluntarily leave the Garden of uh, the Garden of Eden. And actually, various different accounts coupled with an archangel as she did so when she left. Uh, so she's an, a very interesting figure, which in some ways modern feminism has seized upon as the first modern woman, a woman that refused to be subservient to a man, even in defiance of God and even facing God's wrath for doing so. And this story seems to flirt with the possibility of, being, of our main character being either. It's notable that she's never named. I think it's going with the idea that our main character is um, Eve by some of the word choice that she uses. I mean, it seems like that from the description of they're looking for the key to the garden with them already having a concept of fear that this is post-knowledge of them discovering the various dangers of the world and being kicked out of the garden. Uh, it's also the, uh, when she references, you and your father lent me this, gave it to me, actually, which would be much more the way Eve would put it, given that she was a product of Adam rather than like Lilith being a truly um, equal being, uh, being created directly from God's will. But the story itself flirts with the idea of much more of, an, of much more Lilith figure in that she is, in some ways, acting in defiance of Adam and de- acting in defiance of God. And if you're correct, BJ, if they're still in the garden... She's the one that's undoing, in some ways, God's and Adam's will, and then choosing to voluntarily leave the garden to chart her own path. If you want to believe Jewish folklore in exploring demonology, but perhaps a great, a better fate befalls her in this story. Yeah, there's a lot of really weird um, stuff in that Wikipedia article, and Wikipedia is not always the best uh, source Ju- on things like that. Because, well. Uh- Anyway. Jewish mysticism is also incredibly inconsistent and varied and grew over time. So it's kind of what area you want to pick when you're talking about it. Yeah, uh, super uh, a weird thing. But the the thing that um, I think is fairly the most interesting to me in some ways, which they they vaguely touch on, is that her name is comes from the word night. Mm-hmm. So she, she's I think the only reference to her in the Bible is in a list of various creatures of the night. Uh, yeah, sort of. Um, so, and so, and it's in Isaiah, which is a w- weird book by itself. Um, no. S- Sarah, you want to jump in there? Well, so I was going to ask you, BJ, does um, sort of Jewish belief have? Do animals have souls? Uh, no. Okay. Which is weird because of how things translate um but but there isn't really a a a belief as far as i know 
of of like the 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 uh, the same thing as a human soul, okay. um, which is weird and complicated. There also isn't a version of hell, so what a demon really means is really complicated. <laughs> um, it is. Where did they come from? Yeah, I mean, so like as what, far as what I know, giants did they create? Um, giants are a completely different weird thing, Spencer. Um, well, it's Hagrid in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, so yeah, the, and and that's why I was saying, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the concept of soul because, like, that's sort of the what's referenced in terms of like the animals coming before Adam. To, yeah. Um, so. Well, the, yeah, and so part of the reason I asked that question is that, like, there is there in this story there is an implicit understanding of what soul means, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which certainly has to do with the the humans that are in here, but like you get a very clear understanding of consciousness at least, and whether that can be equated with soul or not, I guess is questionable. But I would equate it with soul um, of all of these animals, um, and so I was interested, I guess, in how other understandings of faith deal with animal soul is really so, is really kind of my question so so there's a quick answer that i can give you that uh rabbi gave and that it will make it less clear that rather than more clear which i feel like is perfect for um my faith in general um <laughs> which is um so humans and animals all have souls okay. every human has two souls one is a spiritual soul and the other is an animal soul the spirit, the animal soul is the life force instinct, animalistic drives, and sort of everything else that makes you you and, and whatever else. And then there's the spiritual soul, which is a divine spark, and that's what differentiates human souls from animal soul. I feel like now is when we get into the sort of golden compass. <laughs> I think that's a little bit more Christian. <laughs> and it's, it's sure, but the, you know, yeah. there, are, there are different <laughs> understandings of what each part are. Yeah, it's something the Christian scientists over the Christian scientists and you know philosophers and theologians have debated for centuries as well about the particular consciousness of animals, the particular responsibility of animals. Um, going back to the medieval era, where the uh, Christian law was not exactly that separate from civil law, animals could be prosecuted for violation of human laws. They would be put on trial before Christian tribunals and you know subject to hanging or various other punishments that humans could where they violated human laws. When a collection of pigs ran through the streets and ran over a child in a, a town in, I think it was Reims, France, they were put on trial for murder because it was viewed that they had essentially a connection to God and an understanding of God's laws and should be punished for them. And to the degree such laws weren't enforced against them, it would be a direct undermining of God's authority and, you know, the basis by which civilization was kept. Uh, notably, those pigs actually got off, I believe. Um, but you know, there are many instances of various animals being tried, up until pretty much getting to the Enlightenment era, of where it was suddenly decided that, you know what, animals don't know jack shit about what we're telling them, about what laws we're trying to put on them. This doesn't exactly seem fair. I was going to say, it did kind of remind me of a scene from Blazing Saddles. Um, but also, what? I'm fascinated that the pigs were not convicted. Uh, and But, but sure I feel like pi- that's another podcast in and of itself uh spencer's deep dives into uh the derelict dust of history they actually got a royal pardon at the end too it's a long tale the king himself showed up i believe to pardon the pigs 
I I have no idea what to do with that. Um, I'll, I'll send you a delightful video on the subject of animal trials throughout history. It's a fascinating little watch. But cool. for this story, do we, do we have anything else to discuss about it? I mean, I, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was an, an interesting perspective on an interesting question. Um, so I think that there's one thing that, Sarah, if you're willing, I want yep. you to talk a little bit about. Okay. Um, and because... I feel like I'm going at it, about it with the um, uh, U.S. lawmakers version of pornography. Is I know it when I'll see it, um, which is court. how do you how do you differentiate between a short story and an essay? Because I, oh, I guess I I God. feel like this is a little <laughs> bit more of an essay, and we talked about it a little bit with Melancholy Elephants that it was probably in many ways more of an essay than a story, and um, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but I feel like maybe a little bit of the... It doesn't really have a plot. It just has some themes that the author wants yeah, to cover. Yeah. And so that there isn't really a development of character per se, other than the ones that we understand mm-hmm. and are meant to conjure in our minds rather than the what's actually in the text. And so the, the text is more of a, um, a basis for... A bunch of people to sit around and talk about it and then you have like you know a couple volumes of commentary as spencer mm-hmm. you know referred to the talmud i feel like that it's it's sort of a <laughs> you know you take any given you know couple of sentences in in a written portion of bible and then you know people have written books and books about it oh, so um yeah so that um it's interesting and i'm going to try to not put forward just my kind of gut instinct on the fact that I didn't like Melancholy Elephant, <laughs> therefore I'm going to label it an essay. <laughs> yeah. That works. Good enough criteria. But, um, but do you, so you, do you feel this is more of a story then? You know, I actually do. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to, in the moment, try to justify that because I, I recognize <laughs> that that this... So my point, I guess, is that this does have, as you said, a lot of the kind of elements of an essay that is that is making a point in some sort of narrative, right? Um, which Melancholy Elephants, I think, in your, in your understanding, would also be... Making a point in a narrative way is that fair? I, yeah, I, I guess I would say that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, in your mind, sir, it, does the yeah. transition to first person help it in terms of the uh, the gap between an essay and a short story? So the the transition to first person helps it um, because I I as a reader so like really do genuinely associate with the story more when it kind of makes that transition to first person. But I'm also going to say that, like, the shortness and the relative length of this story actually helps it, in my view, of being a story as opposed to an essay. Um, And so Melancholy Elephants was relatively short if you were dealing with a short story or if you were dealing with some sort of essay. But it it had enough time to hang itself as an essay. (laughs) Okay. Um, And this, this piece... I will neutrally call it a piece, did not have enough time to hang itself as an essay. Um, Where I felt like it was, yes, it had some of the kind of, I am going to expostulate, expostulate? It's a new word. It's a Sarah word, expostulate. I like it. (laughs) 
Um, I'm going to give some sort of exposition, let's say that, mm-hmm. on on the subject. But those happened in such short intervals that I did not feel like I was drawn out of story is a hard word. Mm-hmm. And so I wish to have a classification that is between an essay and a story. A composition? <laughs> sure, you have written something about a thing that is... Mm-hmm. What we've gotten here. But I don't, I legitimately, I do not feel like it's an essay. Um, okay. Because I did, I do not feel like it has the, the legitimate exposition on what the topic is that Melancholy Elephants did do. Now it put, Melancholy Elephants did put that exposition within the frame of a conversation. I do not believe that it was a believable conversation. Um, I don't think it was a thing that would happen in real life. But part of the thing is that this story does not... None of it is within the auspices of, like, this is in any way a sort of realistic, real-life narrative that is happening, right? And so yeah, it's, it's a weird... It's a weird dichotomy... Or it's a weird um, split that is happening because, like... In no so way I, I, is this guess, a kind of like thing that could happen in ways that Melancholy Elephant did read as a thing that could happen. Right. And so so I guess my, like what I get from what you're saying is that like Melancholy Elephants was a short story with an essay in it. And so yes. it's, yeah, harder yeah, yeah, yeah. To, it's hard to classify as a short story purely because yep. there is very definitely an essay in it. Yes. And it's also this, hard to, it's hard to classify as an essay because there's the framing of a short story around it. Right, and so it has elements of both, but it's sort of, uh, to use a Yiddish phrase, which I probably shouldn't, nishtahin is nishtahar. It's not, it's like not, not quite this and not quite that. Sure. Whereas okay, this yeah, is yeah. a little bit more well blended together, and yeah. so it's easier to call it a short story. And there are ways that it's an essay, but it's well blended. And yes. so I was going to tease you a little bit and say, you know, so how do you feel about Aaron Sorkin? Oh fuck. <laughs> and be, because I and and in some ways like I I get I get it and I think that in many ways he does a better job of blending the two but there very much is plot and uh essays within any given episode of West Wing or the newsroom or you know the various other projects that he's worked on sure. whereas like there is no way that a lot of the dialogue and the things that happen are in any way at all believable whatever happen with normal people ever. Aaron Sorkin Sorkin is a mythology. I feel like we have opened a can of worms and we have very much (laughs) finished with our short story. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like that that should be a separate podcast that we do. The mythology of Aaron Sorkin. Um, oh, maybe that's our Patreon content. (laughs) (laughs) If we want to discuss, you know, the difference between essay and short story and comparing the west wing to the newsroom i'm down i that man engages in essays and the degree to which you find them digestible is based on how compelling you find the plot and the characters that are delivered which makes the mythology or not yes um so so maybe uh, uh on some other thing that we do we will talk about those um but but i so i like how you have um exposited is that the word that you were used? I can't remember now. Um, I don't know. You made, I made up a wonderful up. word, and I really liked it. Um, the difference between a short story and an essay, and I feel like there's a sort of um, a line that a lot of their authors walk, and sometimes they stumble one way or another. 
Um, yes. There, there are books that I've read that, you know, they were listing way towards one or way towards the other and, and mm-hmm. ways that they maybe should or shouldn't have. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, I think that there may be reasons that there are other books and stories we don't enjoy as much because they do one without enough of the other, do want, uh, you know, t- tell a little bit more plot, but they're trying to get the essay across or t- have way too much essay when they're just sort of like trying to tell a story. And that's where, where some books or stories fail. <laughs> well, and we as individuals have sort of lines that we and are willing to yes. qu- cross or not, right? Yes. For, for me, I, I always kind of always kind of saw the line as, what freedom do I have to experience? That for an essay, it's just a lecture in text. That I, there is a particular perspective that the, re, that the writer wants me to have. There's a particular emotional result or story that the writer wants me to experience, whatever else. Whereas in a novel or shorts or whatever else, I feel like I've got a little bit more free, wor- free form to experience the world just as being a participant in it rather than just being spoken to about it. That's just my, my perspective on the difference. But I think, and I do think we have that, that difference and that perspective on the difference in different stories too, right? So like given your definition, Spencer, I mm-hmm. experience, and I think this will come as no surprise to our listeners <laughs> that I experience um, Shion names them as more of a short story than I experienced um, Melancholy Elephants, right? So yeah, my, agree with that. my line is Shion names them as more of a short story and Melancholy Elephants is more of an essay in my reading, I think, right? I think, I think we're all kind of in agreement on that one. BJ, are you in agreement on that? Uh, Yes. Okay. I I think I might not have been as in agreement had I been born twenty years earlier and been re- reading it when it came out. But I oh, think that, okay. and and we talked a little bit about it then that it's very much a product of its time. Whereas I feel like this essay is maybe a product of its time in the future, but it isn't yet. Hmm. Okay, I have questions about that. Um, <laughs> Can can you expound on that a little bit? Like what? Yeah, I, I think what makes that, it that that what what gives you that impression? I think, I am gonna I am gonna set a firm cut off in like about seven minutes though, because we are at hour twenty on a 900, 900 word short story. I I hundred percent agree with you. I I think that the um the themes of feminism and dichotomy between sort of the dominion of of man and patriarchy and that being relevant to our current state of affairs makes this less of an essay. And hopefully at some point in the future, it's not going to be as relevant an issue. Okay. And Mm -hmm. then it will be more of an essay. And I think that when we talked about Melancholy Elephants in the early parts of like the, the female main character expressing power in a male fashion, and that was important for the time and now falls flat. It, it's, it, it doesn't ring true anymore and it doesn't make sense. Okay. And so a lot of the writing then becomes stilted and weirder and continues with an essay as, as an essay rather than a short story. Whereas I think that this doesn't because it's, it has a relevance that is is part of the necessary equality of women to men and at some point that that 
you know, if that becomes, you know, completely true and whatever else, then it's less of a, it's less of a story and more of an essay. Okay. So I, I agree with you in that sort of hope of what happens, <laughs> right? Like, that would be great. I really hope that happens. Um, and I guess the only thing that I would question and push, not even push back on, but I, I have a question about sort of like, in the way that I'm understanding what you're saying, is... Does that mean that the sort of essay is a stale genre that it can only deal with things that are that are present and like maybe when things become sort of an essay they don't have they don't have the presence that they might have had in other genres um I think that the mixture of a short story and an essay mm-hmm. when the short story is stale becomes more of an essay. Okay. Well, do we have anything else to explore with respect to this conflicted designation title story? I think Spencer is tired. <laughs> <laughs> we I, are I, approaching 11 o'clock. <laughs> we are. Um, I, yeah, I think we've exhausted. Um, and, I mean, I, again, I'm sure we could talk for another hour or two if Spencer wasn't um, closing in on four hours of sleep for the night. Um, <laughs> of, of oh, you are optimistic for me, sir. <laughs> Um, but, but I think I'm, I'm happy with, and I'm always baffled a little bit by the amount of time that, that we end up spending on impressively short stories. It's a testament to the power of the short story format of where it doesn't take a lot of text to have a lot of meaning. Yes. And this is clearly a story that conveyed a very resonant feeling upon numerous readers for the last 30 years and us included. I'm very glad that we chose to read it. No, yes. I am too. And I, I, I read it for the first time and I was like, what are we gonna, like, I get it. What are we going to talk about? <laughs> what is this whole thing? Um, and this, this conversation has convinced me that there's a lot to talk about in the story and a lot more that I would like to talk about. Right. And well. We will do so in the future. But um, we have a couple of short stories that we're going to cover before doing Station Eleven so we can make Spencer relive his nightmare of an airport. Um, So next we will be reading Playing Nice with God's Bowling Ball by N.K. Jameson. And I say reading, but we will probably be listening to it on um, LeVar Burton's uh, podcast series, um, LeVar Burton Reads. Um, and maybe also reading it in text because Spencer likes to not follow directions well. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you. And then I had a suggestion for a short story after that, which was the Nebula and Hugo Award for Best Short Story, um, A Witch's Guide to Escape, colon, A Practical Compendium of Portal Fantasies, um, which is available on the internet with a short Google, but I'll try and post a uh, link so everybody can read that. And so that'll probably be in two episodes, and then we'll get to Station Eleven and spend a bit more time uh, delving into uh, the intricacies of the post-apocalyptic uh, world that is Station Eleven. Well, yeah, sounds like sounds a good right. plan to me. And so if people are looking for our content elsewhere, where might they go, Spencer? Or BJ? I, I like totally do it. Spencer, on Spencer spot, you don't know. No, I did the intro. So, Spencer, do you I even no know what idea. our website is? Um, Please, Spencer, can you, you have... give a Biden-esque understanding of where our website is? 
<laughs> well, you see, there's a series of tubes. That that's Al Gore. No, that's not Al Gore. <laughs> that is actually, um, Ted, is that Ted Stevens from Alaska, I think? <laughs> I don't, BJ. <laughs> yes, so MegumTalks.com. We have all of our content. Um, you can find everything on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. We have Whiskey on the Weekends, where we drink whiskey and chat. Um, it should come out on uh, most Fridays, so you can enjoy it on the weekend while we enjoy our whiskey. Um, we have Mangum Talks TV, where Spencer and Lee have been going over Chernobyl, and I think are just about finished. Um, mm-hmm. There's also Mangum Hoops, which has something to do with the NBA and comes out um, impressively irregularly. And sometimes we do Mangum Bluffs, where Lee and I tell you that stand-up comedy is something not to watch alone and usually don't watch it at all because the Netflix special was disappointing. Um, And if you have any questions, comments, or anything you want to tell us, there is a link in, I believe, the top right of our website that says contact us and you can contact us and we will read whatever contact information you have for us, um, be it suggestions or whatever else. Uh, and yeah, I All believe right. that's about it. And hopefully, we will very shortly have a uh, podcast within a podcast of Mangum Reads coming for you soon. What we were all looking for. Exactly. All right. Bye, y'all. Have a good night, guys. <laughs>